talking all things theatre and events. The Stage Is Yours podcast. Hello and welcome to The Stage Is Yours podcast with me, your host, Carl Graham, joined as always by producer Dan, here to talk all things theatre and events. Our guest today joins us to talk all things music, from gigs and festivals to streaming services, and we cover a lot more as well. Let me introduce you to Dan Doyle. He's a drummer and percussionist, has played in a number of different bands, supporting a range of different artists, as well as playing in orchestras for musicals as well. Dan, The Stage Is Yours. Dan Doyle, how are you, man? I'm not too bad, thank you very much. It's how... nice to be on. Yeah, definitely, man. Welcome to the uh, the Stage Is Yours podcast. Um, first guest. First guest. Wow. <laughs> yeah, first one. Um, it's been a long time, mate. When was the last time we saw each other? I want to take a guess and say Edinburgh, potentially. Maybe. I feel was it, like... Or it, was it Jay's and dynamic joseph we went for a beer afterwards it would Is have it been ah, okay ah okay so it would have been joseph and then it would have been, yeah, would have been edinburgh. edinburgh so yeah mate it's yeah well, i suppose it would have come up this <laughs> summer if it hadn't all been cancelled but do you know what my my favorite thing was how many people were sort of holding on going oh it'll be all right oh it'll be all right <laughs> as if glastonbury so. was gonna shut reading was gonna shut but the world's largest arts festival was gonna go now we'll stay open I mean, it was there was a glimmer of hope for a brief, brief period, but we kind of uh, the decision was made very early on that it wasn't. Yeah, you think about a fringe yeah. venue, there was no way we were getting uh, that amount. I don't of think social distancing. Time. I don't think social Absolutely distancing on the have worked anyway. <laughs> Absolutely not. People struggle to make money at the best of time anyway. But anyway, man, on to you. How was things for you? How's things? I mean, things aren't too bad. I mean. Obviously, touching on dynamic, I think we're looking at doing some stuff in 2021. Um, yeah. Whether that um, ends up happening, who knows? Yeah. Um, I've spoke to Jay a little bit about what he's got going on, but I assume you're in the fold for all of what his glorious 2021 plans are. I, th- I think so. <laughs> I mean, the, one of the joys of working with Jay is basically that I, I never know what's going on until the last minute. So I presume I'm involved and maybe I won't be, you know. Very true, very true. But I, from brief conversation, it was a little while ago, he's got some big plans and reunions on the horizon. I'm not going to speak for him because it's his yeah. project. But I kind of, hopefully I can get him on to talk about some of the stuff he's got going on because it's interesting think, to say the least. Goes I back think it to some, would be worth getting him on. I think yeah, he, definitely. Uh, it's just actually getting in touch with him because he's, you know, as busy. He's very hard to I'm, keep. With he's hard he's to get hold on. of. Yeah, definitely, absolutely, definitely get a hold of. But it's uh, one of those. But anyway, how's uh, things? You, you're not living in London at the moment, are you? No. So at the moment, I'm sort of spending my time um, between Guildford, where I'm sort of mainly living, and then. I'm taking advantage of lockdown. I've come back um, up to Stratford so I can spend some time with the dogs and spend some time with the family, as yeah, you do. Absolutely. Why not? So I'm back in, um, back up in Stratford at the moment for I think two or three weeks, and then depending on 
when lockdown ends, I'll be making my way back down south um, again. So for you at the moment, there's literally nothing going on kind of work-wise in terms of that, in terms of no, no studio sessions, no... So I had I had a couple of studio sessions going back sort of a month ago. Um, yeah. So they're sort of being um, mixed and mastered at the moment. And I think we get them released in the first week of December. They start to come out. Okay, nice. Um, nice. But then we were due to be going back in to record um next week which obviously now isn't happening um so i think we're going to see how the releases go in december and then apart from that it's just home practice getting ready for theater work next year and potentially some band shows on the horizon but that's really hard to guess at the moment with yeah, regulations i mean it's it's cool that you've managed to get something in i mean for i mean it's yeah obviously there's no I say live stuff as in with audiences, um, yeah. but it's nice that you've managed to kind of get something in and kind of go from there really. But so, yeah, I mean, as for all of us within the creative industry, it's kind of, you've pretty much shut down overnight, to be honest. And I think, I think the weirdest thing is, is the fact that for me, the thing I'm not looking forward to is obviously shutting down the industry was essentially a three day warning that we had and then everything disappeared and I think actually the hardest part is opening because you can't turn around and say from Monday everything's back to normal so yeah, I feel I like it's, yeah. it's the staggered opening that's then is going to be the the real struggle to actually open stuff quick enough to not lose an industry but also not to rush in to go the opposite way and to ruin everything before you start yeah, absolutely. I think it's 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 a really difficult balance, like really difficult balance. I think that needs to be kind of struck between, like you said, opening. We, I would absolutely love them to just go, yeah, sweet, go back, it's fine. Here's like an instant Corona test that you can do as you walk in the door, like you hand your ticket yeah. over, and so that that would be the absolute ideal. But obviously, we're well aware that's not going to be the case. But um, it's quite interesting, like I said, and what and part of the reason why to chat to you is it's am I contacts in the out and out music industry are kind of uh, limited and that I don't do a huge amount of work in that side of things so it's quite interesting chatting to you hearing that there are a few bits and pieces going on but in a very kind of limited way um which kind of brings us on to what you kind of first want to talk about which is kind of streaming services and things like that yeah. really in the sense of that so how I mean have things just kind of popped up and I suppose how are people adapting to kind of still try and keep things well, being released well i think a lot of people now are more than ever focusing on online content um i know so many people who have turned to sort of things like either dropping the live element entirely and just going straight into sort of recording um and i know a lot of people who are focusing on things like EPs and single track releases and stuff that they can do until they can sort of carry them over to when they can go back to live. Um, but I think for me, like the biggest difference I've noticed, um, I remember working with an artist a couple of years ago. And the one thing that I loved um, was the fact that when we did sort of festivals in the summer, we'd do like live arrangements, like specifically for festivals and things. And I think one of the things I've noticed now is a lot of the stuff that people are putting out in their room is all incredible stuff. But actually, a lot of it, I feel like, is 
struggling to break the boundary between having um, the the variation needed to when you play different live shows, whether it's an intimate acoustic set or whether it's a headline festival slot. And actually, I think that's really hard to gauge when you're sat in your bedroom to be able yeah, to figure absolutely. out how to put something across that could do both or whether to put out multiple versions that actually you might not even think about until you're put in that live situation. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's difficult. And I think, like you said, I think the marketplace is somewhat potentially quite flooded at the moment in the sense of, like I said, there's a lot of people turned to it. Um, some people have got maybe have got more time in their hands to try and decided to do it because they've either lost their job or something like that and have gone, I'm going to yeah. give it a go. And, abs- and amazing that they've done that. But it's almost that kind of thing of because established artists are also doing a similar thing at the moment. It's yeah. kind of those uh, places are kind of, yeah, there's just a lot more people in that space. It's like, I mean, obviously you've got things like YouTube and stuff like that, which is a ridiculous platform at the moment. It's on a whole kind of world of its own, really. But in terms of out-and-out music streaming services, I don't, it's it's difficult, really. I mean, off the top of my head, you've got what, I mean, obviously you've got things like Spotify, iTunes, but there yeah. for a new artist is not something that. For, um, my understanding of it's very very limited isn't necessarily the best platform well i think you've got options like um you've got things like deezer for example which i know a few people are jumping on the bandwagon um that seems to be getting a little bit more popular um oddly enough although i hate saying i hate mentioning this app on a on a podcast but <laughs> okay, I've, I've i've seen that somehow a lot of artists are turning to things like tiktok now because that seems to be a great way to sort of boost sort of finding an artist to begin with. And then they seem to be going down the sort of standard Spotify, iTunes route and just getting known through more social media platforms rather than say, picking a different platform to originally broadcast their music on. I think TikTok's an interesting one. Um, to me, TikTok is Vine. Yeah, Vine exactly. used to be but has become way more successful in, I mean, it's absolutely one in terms of when it's the fact that it's launched and it's got to where it has happens to have been in a pandemic when everyone sat around at home, (laughs) sat at home and they have the time to do it. Like, absolutely. I think that's quite interesting that artists are kind of using that. Absolutely. I think it's, I mean, I'm not in that TikTok world at all. And I find it all somewhat baffling and confusing, but absolutely. If there's, a platform where people are, yeah, I think it works. And I think the nature of the kind of, I mean, Vine was what, seven second clips? Vine, yeah. uh, TikTok's obviously a bit longer, but I think that nature of things for a lot of people is unfortunately kind of what it's at. If you can have that 15, 30 second grab, then that really but, makes a difference. Well, I think this is the thing now. I think one of the, one of the biggest things I've noticed is obviously in the past, if you wanted to sort of get bigger in your area as an upcoming artist, you could sort of either jump onto somebody's touring show if they were coming by who might bring you in fans, or it was obviously the standard things where you used to have things like Battle of the Bands and stuff where you would come to support one artist and you'd end up leaving with three or four that you'd also then go home and listen to and you'd go to their shows and everything else. But I think actually... I feel like things like TikTok and the whole social media side of things are now starting to take over where it's, you don't necessarily even know that an artist is out there. 
but because you come on and you watch a challenge video or you watch a mainstream video, it's gone online from Facebook. And I've noticed I do it quite recently now because I have the time to at home where I'll sort of listen to a song in the background and I'll go, oh, I've never heard of that. Like, who is it? And you find an artist and then through doing that, you find seven different covers that you think yeah, you sort I of like and then that brings you to a whole new artist that you've probably never heard of. Yeah, I think you can't deny the reach of social media. Like you said, it is so, it's mental the way it can, so quickly you can reach different parts of the world. Whereas like you said before, the kind of, traditional is probably the wrong way to say it but the kind of usual route of in your local area yeah. you do this do that you play find a, a band at a pub or whatever that kind of thing is i do that it kind of brings us a little bit into what i want to talk about of kind of the, this whole kind of idea of as and when we can obviously we've gone back into lockdown and when we probably initially started talking about this we england certainly wasn't in lockdown i'm in edinburgh but we're in tier three obviously but we've not yeah. there's been no kind of real events up here at all at any point they've never got to a point where you can do any kind of uh show really there was a little brief bit of outdoor things but it's all been very controlled in that sense obviously with things just being a little bit more uh stricter up here in that yeah. initial rollout but um i think how that then going forward of kind of the of little pop-up gigs outdoor things um is something that i think we might see a little bit more of in the sense of that and kind of I don't want to say busking in the wrong type of term really because it's not going to be that i think you will see things in uh i mean you know the meadows for instance so anybody, yeah. you, i think you could very possibly start to see some that's your perfect platform or area really to kind of do something outside that could be from that so it would be interesting to see whether the people who have had this social media success and what you think about it is that then going to translate to when it, things can open up because obviously there's a big difference between sitting in your room uh, similar to as we are right now for instance to then being out on a stage in front of I mean even 50 100 people well I think I think for me that's one of the bigger things that I'm sort of worried about because I feel like when you're an upcoming artist you know one of actually the key developments that most artists have is that initial fear of walking onto a stage with 30 or 40 people that they've never met before and wondering about how they're going to get judged. And I feel like, you know, everything from artist interaction with um, the people who are there witnessing, like sort of like your first few gigs, I think that's sort of crucial to how an artist will build. And I feel like one of the dangers is with social distancing gigs and outdoor pop-ups and stuff, to a certain extent, you lose some of that crowd element. Because I think if you're still in the middle of a field and you might get, 20 people within 100 meters I think it feels a lot different to when you ever walk onto a stage and you have 20 people fighting to be in that two meter gap in front of you yeah and I um, think that will be the biggest change yeah I think please as an artist for yourself it's that developing those initial kind of things like you said when you're 30 40 people at your first ever gigs or whatever there's obviously that nerves and things but that initial intimacy of a gig is great for you is that sense because you can have that yeah. very much feedback would you uh, like is there a fear that some of these certainly who have gained a social media following in during lockdown suddenly their first gig if they suddenly end up being some viral name could be in front of a few hundred people yeah which for them as an artist is potentially even more terrifying than the nerves that you for instance you probably felt or might have felt when your first kind of 
Well, I, th- I think you're right. People. I think that is also going to be something to watch out for because with sort of the fame that some people are getting over lockdown and I know sort of um, one of my good friends put out a track um, a few weeks ago and she's got sort of 12,000 views within the first, I think, two and a half weeks, mm-hmm. which as an upcoming artist is pretty it's good. Amazing. You know, that's yeah. literally that's literally mad to think that you can write that in a few weeks over your bedroom and 12,000 people have clipped on it. But I think that's then, things like that is then where it comes into a whole new element because there will be people who might have only been writing to mess around because they've got, nine to five jobs at work and everything else going on and with time to go out to see your friends and everything else but I think now now people are in lockdown and they're focusing a lot more on things like music because you can do it from home rather than having to be out and about and touring and traveling and everything I think it's then I think you're right it is a whole new feeling to the people who are going to get bigger who might come out of lockdown with you know starting at the smaller end of just a few thousand views to actually there'll be people who'll probably get signed and picked up and who could very well find that their first gig after is one of the first gigs. Yeah. Like if you're, I mean, if, if when you were starting out, um, how would have you, you felt if your very first gig of ever playing live potentially in front of people, other than say maybe your flatmates or your parents or whatever is suddenly in, I mean, just trying to think is in say like an o2 academy one of like the smaller rooms up there that's still going to be like three four hundred people potentially that that's a very different who have bought tickets and not just kind yeah. of of doing that they're there to see you how would that would have made you feel as that your first gig and that artist in that sense i think that's i think that, to be honest i think i'd be absolutely terrified because i think the other thing as well is for me personally my first few gigs that were sort of to bigger crowds were either me being able to play with already established artists where people were there for the artist and I was just sort of a drummer rather than anybody necessarily knowing who I was. Or they were ones where we jumped on shows with bigger bands and it's then people come for that band and I guess sort of out of politeness and respect, they turn up an hour early to see you open up. You know, yeah, and it's whereas and I it's, think, and it's a bonus for them if they like what you're playing, kind of. Thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I think it's a lot more scary if the doors open and you know that there's 400 people packed into rooms specifically to see you, and actually you feel the only they haven't necessarily seen you live. They don't really know what you're like as a person. Yeah, and I think the other thing as well is when you listen to an artist's track, you can put on a whole album from an artist, and you can sort of gain a lot of insight into what they're like by how they write and the genre of music and things like that. But actually, I think for an artist performing live, those gaps in between where you're not playing Mm. can feel so different because that's then when it's crowd interaction and everything. And actually that's them not paying any attention to to your music for a few seconds. It's just them paying attention to you. Uh, Yeah, that kind of comes under that kind of stage kind of presence and craft element. And we both know that there are certain bands out there that are amazing live and some that are amazing on record, but actually when they play live, it's not quite what you thought it would be. It's not, it's still good to listen to, but you're like, well, it's, I could, it's very much feels like I'm listening 
I could just be listening to the album live kind of thing or listen to the album. Yeah. So I think that's something to do with that. Do you think that you potentially, we could lose talent from the industry because of this, because they get that first gig that's suddenly in front of a few hundred people. And it, like you said, you would be terrified and actually they're going to be terrified for that. And they go, actually, I can't hack this. I'm going to stay doing what I'm doing in. I don't, I don't feel like we'll lose talent, but I think we'll, I think it'll definitely change how we perceive talent in general, because I've, for me, I feel like the people who are naturally better at stage presence, I feel like they will emerge slightly stronger in terms of live shows. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the people who either aren't used to it or just aren't necessarily as confident in front of people, I feel like those are the people where they will fix a lot more on putting out things on streaming platforms on YouTube and doing things like music videos and things rather than specifically aiming to do live shows. So I don't, I don't think we'll necessarily lose talent, but I think it might just create a bit of a bigger divide between bands that we perceive as sort of online based bands that sort of only do shows every now and again versus the bands that we see where they're known a lot more for live shows and performances and everything else, who then also put out things online just to sort of keep their fan base happy in between shows. I think I hate to kind of say this because it's absolutely, uh, obviously I make a living from produ- from being involved in gigs and theatre and live shows. And that's yeah. Do you think that, certainly from the music side of things, um, it's do you feel it's going to, it's obviously going to change the industry, but do you feel it's going to have a long lasting in the change to the industry that we are going to see this very much an artist who can be entirely, I'm not going to say TikTok based, but that kind of artist who is literally going to specialize in and have a following generated by, by that. And that actually we could see less, I hate to say that less live shows in that sense. So I think for, for me, I think a lot of it, actually as weird as this may sound comes down to individual artists because i think there's you know you get some sort of artists where i think if artists are multi-instrumentalists i think there is a real danger that you can lose sort of musicians in that sense and you can lose sort of gigs from it because i feel um you know once you get to the stage where if you're a singer songwriter and you can write your own music, you can play the drums, the bass and keys, and you can film it okay. You don't actually need any other musicians to create a full track. And yeah. once that goes onto TikTok, nobody's going to question it. And in, and in fact, actually, people are more likely to turn around and go, oh, look at this person, they're playing five instruments and they're doing everything for them. Whereas live, unless you're willing to spend some good money on some looping gear, and unless you want to be able to do that and to take away from a live element, you sort of need other musicians to fill in the gaps and to do everything else. So but I think, yeah, I think it's, I think it's going to give a, a more of a dive. I'm not diversity is probably the wrong word in that sense, but I think you're going to get a new type of artist if that's the right yeah. kind of way to yeah, describe it. I think it. it's going to be, I think it's going to be artists who are singer songwriters looking to be able to branch out to be able to do more for themselves. Definitely. But then in terms of tying that into the industry as a whole, I don't, 
I probably sound like an idiot and no doubt I'll look look at this in four four <laughs> years time and think I was an idiot but I don't I, I think luckily I don't think we'll ever be able to lose the whole industry purely no, because I think true. nothing will ever take away from the experience of going to see your favorite band and I don't think that can ever be replaced even even you know when you sit at home and you're watching on your tv or your laptop it's not quite the same feeling as being there and experiencing it I think this is a debate I've had with quite a lot of people over lockdown of people saying, oh, well, you can, obviously a lot of, certainly from my line of work, a lot of theatre shows are filmed now for to be screened yeah. in cinemas and stuff like that. And it's the same with some gigs and things as well. I know the Prodigy did Warriors Dance a few years ago yep. uh, and things like where they really make a massive production out of it. That's great. And they are great. And don't get me wrong. And the last show that I was on was filmed and has just been released and screened in cinemas back in September. And it is great to sit and watch, but there's just something that's not quite there. It's it's filmed to go on screen, so I think it's you miss some of what that is. And just the fact of all the people around you, I think that makes a, a huge, huge difference, like you said. So I don't yeah, well, I don't think we'll ever lose the live side of it. I think it might change a little bit. I think you could definitely see that. There's definitely been a massive push towards festivals in the last few years. I think festivals are arguably bigger than ever. Well, I, th- I think one of the, obviously the main advantage to a festival is you don't necessarily pay that much more money compared to how you would for most show tickets these days, but you see so many more bands. But I mean, I think it was um, Frank Turner um, did um, one of the first sort of social distancing test shows um, at the Clapham Grand. Um, and they basically worked out afterwards the, the amount of money they made from social distancing didn't even cover the full venue cost. So no, then that means so the artist is, was basically yeah. doing it for nothing and the venue was still losing money to put on a show. Now you could argue and say that the venue, as much as they might have lost money, they've still gained money compared to shutting. But actually if, you know, what, what you don't want to do is take established artists going down the route of either having to perform for no money just for the sake of performing yeah, or think, for venues to lose yeah, money absolutely. just for the sake of hosting. I think this is, a, again, comes on to a debate I've had with a lot of people. And I think it's worse for the music industry right now than, say, theatre. So theatre, obviously, everyone's seated. Everyone sits there. It's fine. Yeah. It's done. It's dusted. Obviously, they did some test events at Palladium and things like that. And I think it worked out. And you can get about a third of an audience, roughly, yeah. when it's seated. So when you think of a standing gig... You're not like, and people aren't going to want to go to see a gig and have to sit in and stay seated and be from that. I think that's all of that. So I absolutely agree that it's so it's weighing that balance up. Actually, if it costs you more money to have your staff there and do that, you still have to fully staff the building because obviously, if something were to go wrong, then you still yeah, have to be exactly. able to do that. That's you still have to have enough people in to deal with that. So I think that's very difficult. Um, how would you, as an artist, feel playing a socially distanced gig if you say you've got say you're in a venue that would normally hold 400 people standing, actually you've suddenly got 80 people sat in pairs all dotted around and they're not allowed to move around. It's just kind of, you're not allowed to really get up and dance or they're set limited in boxes where they can be. Like, How would th- you as an artist feel that? Like, Would you even like, say yes to it? I, to be honest, I think, I think you would kind of have to say yes just to try and try it. Like I don't, I think it's the same with everything. I don't think you'd be able to say no, because I feel like if you say no, 
A, you don't experience it, but then I also feel like you're losing out to all the people who will say yes. But then the flip side to that is I think if you say yes, I think sort of one of a, a, a classic example is when I went, um, I went away and supported a band called Vintage Trouble, um, who are very big in sort of America, but we actually supported them in Holland on one of their tours. Um, and I supported them with an artist called Dee Dee Allen. Um, and one of the most amazing things about watching Vintage Trouble were how well do they work in audience? Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, even like the, the industry standards of, you know, just sort of things like crowd surfing and things like that. You know, obviously all that would be completely gone. But I think when you then take that a step further and you think that actually as an artist, if you wanted to get the crowd going, knowing that you wouldn't actually be able to walk around with them or you wouldn't be able to interact and, you know, I guess, I guess it depends on how far you take it, but I imagine it'll get to the point where even things like, you know, throwing things over to the audience are probably going to get told no, because you don't know what you're going to transmit these days and stuff. And I feel like it makes it very black and white between where the artist is and where the crowd is and I think it not changes having the, any overlap. Yeah. I think it very much changes the atmosphere at the gig and what, is involved and i think that's for a lot of people why they go to see it's to be around people to have that atmosphere that you get from that i think certain things obviously a different atmosphere like if you go to like a classical concert then obviously it's a very different vibe anyway yeah so i think that's kind of there but i think certainly from a from bands and things stand point of view i think it, yeah as an artist i think that's gonna be very difficult to to be able to do um I said, I've got a comedian friend who did a couple of the drive-in comedy gigs um, oh, okay. and he said they were the strangest experience of his life. He said, it's so, <laughs> I can imagine. he says, because all you've got, all you see is a bunch of car, it was windscreens. You don't see, you can't bunch, see, yeah, you don't even the, see people. You can't see into the cars. He said, people, you can vaguely hear some laughter at times, but people would like honk their horn to say they're laughing, like flash their lights. He said it was so bizarre and utterly weird. And he said, it's, certainly from a comedy point of view, that audience interaction is so, so important. He said it was, for him, it felt like he was just absolutely bombing and just flopping because he's got no, there is no feedback coming from the audience. He said it was very, very weird. So I feel like that would be very much the same for musicians and artists who are used to having that interaction. Would you know what? One of the things that comes to mind for me is, um, I know sort of they've always had an established place for quite a long time anyway but bring me the horizon the band Mm -hmm. obviously when they did their show at the royal albert hall and they had a classical orchestra in that was very much a turning point for them in terms of you didn't need to jump around and mosh to it like there were people who probably did sit in their living rooms and listen to it which is probably rare for a band of that genre to not have to mosh but they sort of come to mind, I think, when you think about bands ever doing live shows again. If they were to sort of do a live show that was socially distanced, if you took away things like moshing and like audience interaction at all, actually that would be three quarters of their set list gone, yeah. effectively, because you wouldn't be able to play three quarters of it without them listening. And it does make me wonder, bands that are sort of like, anywhere near metalcore or heavy and things like that, a lot of their music solely relies on audience interaction. 
even if it doesn't necessarily come into it when they're making the music in terms of actually people enjoying the music i think it is very much a 50 50 between liking the music to begin with but also being able to jump around and mosh and everything else and i think that's where actually i don't know whether we're rather than losing artists whether we're just going to lose genres because i think the artists will be able to redevelop and rewrite but i think the genres aren't going to be perceived the same if they're not played live in so long and people only ever listen to them in their bedrooms or in a car rather than with yeah, absolutely. people that's a very that's a very good point actually in the sense that yeah certain things lend themselves much better to a much more chilled laid back gig of doing of being around in that sense and whereas i do that but then i would go to a a very different gig experience maybe not so much now with their later stuff but in the early days mumford and sons gigs in their early days when it very much was kind of um their kind of slightly older style that was there was no real drums or anything in it it was that yeah. i remember being at that kind of gig and i made you make all the friends at that kind of gig and you just because it's so much more chilled and vibe and everyone's yeah. just there it's so, so like that even, you can actually yeah so i think that kind of i think that so that's quite interesting that you said yeah that certain definitely certain genres will struggle but bringing you back to the point that you uh, with bring me horizon and playing with the classical orchestra do you think you'd get a lot more artists look to adapt and change it because that or was that very much just the spectacle of bring me horizon with an orchestra as a one-off kind of look what we can do kind of thing whereas if they did that say week in week out on a tour is it going to still have the same impact as what that one-off gig at the albert hall did well i think it sort of depends how you look at it like for me personally obviously being around theater work i've um always been around sort of like more classical instruments and like woodwind and brass and all that jazz um but i think so i for me personally i didn't necessarily look at that and sort of get shocked whereas i feel like a lot of people might have not necessarily ever really paid attention to an orchestra but because they like to bring me the horizon they would have been shocked at the fact that they could enjoy an orchestra complementing one of their bands and I think the danger is, is if Bring Me sort of did that every other week to be able to do shows where people could sit down, I think the first couple of weeks would be amazing. But then I feel after that, actually, people would, I think unless they changed their music entirely, I think you would then have to then go back to having a heavy piece of music to then shock someone into liking it again, almost. But then yeah, I don't I mean, know how you then find that find the balance between not losing who you are as an artist just to adapt to a genre that might be more suitable for people to listen to at home. Yeah, I think that's a real again, it's a real tricky balance. And uh, we'll bring it on to kind of the last kind of thing, and we've kind of talked it all the way through of this kind of I don't want to say battle because it's absolutely the wrong word of a new emerging <laughs> artist versus existing artists because it's it shouldn't be a battle but it, I imagine for the artist it can feel like that and feel like a struggle in that sense at times um so it's kind of it's like you said there that existing artist actually has the issue at the moment of if they can't do what they do normally how much do they try to adapt and get away from that yeah. obviously you see bands tr- as they go through their kind of career they change and they do that like we just talked about Mumford and Sons their early stuff was very much there's no drums or anything in it whereas now it's very different in that sense and kind of almost virgins kind of Kings of Leon alternative yeah. 
listening. And Kings of Leon very much the same, started off very rocky and then again became more alternate in that sense. So it's kind of that development from there for an existing artist is great, but that's obviously going to change. So in a weird way, does what's happening right now actually give a slight advantage to new artists because they can really target what they're starting to do to be in this kind of new yeah world world of being able to kind of go from the start of being like this is where i am and then when they adapt and change it's a little bit different and they can adapt as it's going whereas an existing artist at the moment very much feels like they have to suddenly turn things on their head like with bring me the horizon that you just mentioned well i reckon with new and upcoming artists i think it will be easier because i think they with, with sort of how lockdown is coming in place I think they've almost been able to see the gap before it's there, which in which in music is sort of rare in many occasions. Like normally artists appear who are bigger and they sort of drive forward a new movement. Whereas I think now because of lockdown coming in and everybody knows we're going to be shut in and we won't have gigs, I think it very much creates a gap for the sort of online based people to come in and with that for them to decide almost what, music is going to take that gap because there's sort of I think there's a lot of people who have built up good followings on social media and they've managed to gain a lot of traction which then means that when they see the gap it's almost whatever genre of music they want to put out is what people will then naturally start to follow and expect so I think it is a lot easier than say artists who are used to touring to then have to suddenly adapt and see which way social media influence is pushing people to listen to. And I think that does make it a lot easier. But I guess the the one advantage that won't ever change, I think, to establish artists is they already have the following. You know, I think if people, there's bands online like that, I think when you get sort of like two, three, four hundred thousand followers and things, to a certain extent, actually, it doesn't matter whether you put off a 20 second video of someone messing around with a harmony idea or whether you put out a five minute fully completed track. Whereas I think the upcoming artists still then have to struggle with things like production value and actually the content that they're putting out in order to get the same reach. Like I, I know if I turn around tomorrow and just put up a photo of my drum kit, nobody would probably care. Yeah. Whereas all the established artists don't actually then have to drive as much for it to still get the hits and the views and for people to turn around and be like, oh, what's that? I haven't seen that photo before. So I, th- I think it's very much a battle between new upcoming content creators managing to fill the gap in the right way to get noticed quicker. And I think you're right, they don't have to worry about so much as turning on their heads with their sounds or anything because if it's the first sort of glimpse you're seeing of someone, you'll just associate that sound and that sort of atmosphere with them. Yeah, so I think it's, it's, yeah, it's a really tricky kind of conversation to kind of approach and do. And I think there's always going to be the challenges of a new artist, regardless of what system of that, of getting your, uh, your foot in the door, if you like, I think it's, yes. and arguably some ways it's got better in under lockdown with social media and things but i think that's going to favor certain artists because like you said that production value for a singer songwriter at home 
I mean, if you really wanted to, you could get yourself set up with a mic and some stuff. It's not going to be great quality, but you're going to get something out of it for like 50, 60 quid. Yeah, you get exactly. yourself set up really on the cheap and it's there. But if you're then going to turn that around to say, uh, I mean, for instance, some of the bands you played in when like you're at college where there's four or five of you in it, yeah. that then suddenly becomes a very different thing of being able to do that. And then it's having the time to sit and mix it down and having a completely different skill set in that sense. So I think that's a real, like, like you said, that existing artist. Yes, it favours some right now, but I don't think it, it certainly doesn't favour, it wouldn't favour all. And then not having small venues available with events like Battle of the Bands and that kind of things. Like, I think that's a potential where you could, where certain artists get together might not be a, like an option that's do that so you might lose out on something that just spontaneously forms because you've got say a drummer and a couple of guitarists and a vocalist that are all doing their own yeah. thing but happen to just get just to try something yeah well I, I think it's it's interesting as well that you mentioned about sort of artists having to like mix and master and stuff because I remember at the start of the first lockdown we had all I genuinely I think for about four or five days all I got were emails from various places that I'd sort of like subscribe to for music and things and all of it was things like you know download a free mix at home package and you know learn learn how to master efficiently for 90% off sale values because they knew that people were going to be spending a lot of time at home and you know the average person might not turn around and spend 100 quid but they'll happily spend 20 quid if they think it will get them closer to being able to mix and edit at home. And I think that's the other side where it then comes in to actually all the skills where you might be at a gig and you might meet a recording engineer that you get on with and you might end up working with them and you've already got 40 years of expertise on your next single without realising versus the people then trying to do it all themselves at home. And, you know, it's, it's almost like the, for me, sort of like, eight or nine years ago where people were putting out SoundCloud links for feedback and then basing it on that yeah. was then how they then uploaded to like Spotify and iTunes and things. I mean, Whereas now it's still a thing. Does it still I, exist? It was definitely a I thing, think, like I said, when I was younger, but I've not seen or like, it just seems, and it was a massive thing. Like there was loads of stuff on SoundCloud. You could go through it and you'd find all sorts of stuff from people doing like bootleg mixes of things yeah. ripped off and like, yeah, okay. It's, copyright wise and massively not the way to do things but you'd find stuff and you discover things and it was a way to at least test the waters with stuff but i feel like that's not quite so much anymore because it's that but you come back to that and i think this is where it is uh, to me being an uh i mean other dan who's obviously listening in is massively into this area this is what he does mixing things down and in a production in a studio is a it's a real skill like it's yeah to know what you're listening for and what you're doing is a real, real thing. And I don't think all the best will in the world, I don't think you're learning that at home. Let's no. You're not going to have invested in a pair of headphones that are going to listen to give you the kind of quality that ultimately you want. But it is good that they have to have an understanding, I think, as an artist of what goes into it. But it's a very difficult thing to try and learn on your own. Well, well, I always feel like a lot of the learning from that sort of side should actually come from live experience anyway. Like oh, yeah, I always like find... Make mistakes. Make mistakes. Learn, like, when you get a horrible squeak and it sounds horrendous and it 
everyone yeah. thinks there is, you know not to do that again very quickly. But well, I tell you, I tell you what, this this to this day is still one of the most amazing things I've ever seen, and it made me realise instantly how much of an idiot I was to doubt someone, because I remember um, playing a venue abroad once, and the the guy who was in charge of sort of like overall room sound and miking and everything, he turned around to me and he said to me, he went, oh, he was like, can you just can you just point your bass drum a little bit more towards me? And I was, I, I presumed he was getting it to the center of a room or for like visual or something. And he went, just, just a bit more, just a bit more. And he came over and no word of a lie, he must have moved my kick drum about a centimeter, maybe a centimeter and a half. And he walked back into the centre room and he starts walking around clicking his fingers. And I was like, and I was like, what, what on earth is this man doing? I was like, my bass drum's a centimetre out and now he's clicking his fingers. And he comes back to me five minutes later and he goes, that's the centre of a room sorted, build your drum kit around that. And it was, it was the most incredible thing. Because I remember in my head thinking like, what's this man doing? Has he gone a little bit crazy? And it turns out he actually knew he'd never been in the room before. And that was just his way of finding out where the sweet point in the room was for frequencies to bounce off walls and everything. Yeah, it's and that's something you're never going to learn in your living room from a brochure or a YouTube video telling you. And that's something that you're never going to pick up, no matter how many books you read or how many sort of like articles you download online. I think that's something you're never going to pick out is actually the real life expertise of matching to different rooms and everything from how changing a mic can influence the sort of tone that you'll get from someone's voice. And I think that's something that is really hard to digitally replicate, which I think is something that people don't understand. I think it is very difficult. And that's an incredible story. And for people to, and I utterly admire anyone who's got that kind of ear that can literally just be like, yeah, I know. Yeah. Find that. And that like, and the fact that you've never been in the room before is in, uh, is <laughs> amazing. That, blows my mind at times and you you do get that you work with a few people i mean you talk of acoustics and i mean you've played in stratford arts house which is octagonal so that's oh, always joyous yes. stand in the middle <laughs> of that and clap and you hear it come back at your eight different speeds but it's it's one of those and it's amazing and it's i think that kind of talent is incredible and i think yeah that's kind of where that level of expertise is at and you just kind of it blows your mind really that that is that someone's ear is that good that they can yeah but that's something you're never going to learn so so well is it never going to learn at home anyway rather than out so I I think that's another change as well where actually to a certain extent I'd like to hope they are but I feel like people are less likely to take that kind of care and effort if they know they're only doing it for 200 people rather than 2,000 people because of venues changing and social distancing as well Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. I think it's going to be, it's interesting. And I think it's actually, I think a lot of uh, sound engineers will, obviously that everyone's eager to get back and they're going to get back. And obviously the gigs are going to be very different. And and if it is socially distanced, it's all going to sound very different. And they're going to have probably the time of their lives figuring it all out and tweaking and changing everything around. And and they're going to enjoy it because there's going to be a lot to go on and everyone's just going to enjoy to be back. But I think it's, yeah, like you said, I think, having that hands-on experience and learning bits and pieces i mean and you know yourself you've been around it enough and especially when you're working on musicals i think that's a very different uh thing again and you realize how suddenly you're playing the same instrument yet it's a very different way of 
working for you as well in terms of how yeah. you play. Right, I imagine you play you you play your kit very differently if you're playing in a a rock or an alternate rock band to how you would when you're working for Dynamic. And do you know what? Do you know what? Working for Dynamic genuinely has made me realise how much control you have to be able to have over your instrument. Because I think when you get used to doing gigs and shows and things, you know, I think there's that tendency when, you know, you can tell the audience are enjoying it and you might play a little bit louder. And I think it's things where, you know, if someone wants to turn around for a chorus and say, oh, let's just, let's speed it up final time round, let's drive it a bit more forwards. And you can just do that. But I think actually theatre work for me has shown me that it doesn't matter whether it's halfway through the final chorus or whether you've decided to add an extra eight bars, you still have to play it at the same tempo and the same volume and you still have to accent everything in the same way, regardless of whether you think the audience are enjoying it or hating it. And I yeah, think that's the, the element of control for me is the biggest thing of actually almost not adapting to your surroundings because it has to be what's written down on score. I think for you, I said like when we first met, you were very much a a drummer, a band, a drummer in bands, and yeah, that's what it was. Exactly. I think it's now the fact that you play with dynamic and other bits and pieces around it in musicals and pits and stuff. I think is is testament to yourself in that sense. New learning skills, it's amazing. Like reading music is a big, big one. I can follow it. I couldn't tell you what it is. <laughs> could at least follow it and count along to a point, but it's. Yeah, I think it is. Um, playing in a pit and an orchestra is something that a lot of musicians, I think, would benefit from. I think it would be quite an eye-opening thing to do because it's a very different way of playing. But whereas the same as I think some classical musicians would probably learn just as much from playing a live a band, yeah. band gig because I think you learn different notions in that. And I think there is certainly room and there is more with some, some of the musicals that are being written and developed that are a little bit kind of more crossover in the makeup of the kind of, and the way the arrangement's written is that it naturally starts to suit different instruments that would be not aren't classically you wouldn't find in a... Yeah, but instruments that can be bought in. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's one of those. I certainly think it's, uh, and obviously it's from a pit point of view, and it's certainly something I'm sure you've done that is the kind of crossover between drummer and percussionist. Yeah. And that that's a very, actually that they are two very different things. Ultimately, well, I, I, mean. I th well, I think percussion is the one thing I've sort of learned. And um, I think I can get away with saying this because it's out on the website. So for obviously dynamics, looking at doing into the woods for the next production. Um, so that joyous. <laughs> Oh, sometime. It's never a challenge. Um, but that, for me, is one of those where actually the drums almost take a little bit of a backseat and the percussion is driving it, which for me was really interesting to learn because I'm so used to the drums sort of being the key element that will lock in with things like bass and keys and accents and everything, and percussion is just a layer on top where actually I've noticed now the more sort of musicals that I've done and everything, the percussion then starts to sit out more in my head as being the driving force. And if anything, the drums are adding accents and for variation rather than the percussion standing out. And I think when I first started doing theatre, in my head, it was always focus on the drums and if you can add a tambourine. But 
I think looking at it now, you realise it's almost the wrong way. You need to be focusing on the percussion and adding in drums when you're able to and syncing it around. And yeah, I think that's nice. Right, we've got some outro questions. We're going to ask everyone on the pod the same three questions. Oh, and just God, see right, okay. They're completely random and completely sporadic, and it's just kind of do that. The first one's fine, it's tame. And they're all tame and PG, it's fine, don't worry too much. Um, so the first one is if you could work uh, or perform in any show gig whatever you want to do what is that dream thing if someone oh. went to if someone went to you you can work on anything you want in the world what are you going to say that's where like my dream would be to be do this and you I know, could and that's <laughs> oh do you know what the, the band side and the theatre side of me is really really split between the two <laughs> not surprised <laughs> Oh, God. Um, right. Okay. So I think anything in the world at all, I'd want to play drums for Eminem at some point, purely because every time I watch his videos, his drummer has such a good balance between acoustic and samples and backing tracks and then live random freestyles. And I think that Eminem, I think, was the first, no, maybe the second CD I ever got when I had a Walkman when I was tiny. So I, th- I think it would have to be an Eminem show just purely because I think he's probably the first artist I paid attention to more than a song for. So, cool. yeah, Eminem, I'm going to go with nice. Okay. The theatre I mean, side I'd... of me really wanted to say The Lion King on the West End. But... Okay. <laughs> I mean, it was on tour. Um, but yeah. <laughs> sat in the Edinburgh Playhouse for four months before they were allowed to take it out. But cool. Um, second question. What is your go-to post-show snack? I think... <laughs> like everyone's got something, that one thing that after a show you go, I just need, like, this is what I want. That's what I want. We're not talking, a, we're not talking a beer. We're not on talking a show. No, do you know what? I think anybody who's ever worked on a show with me already knows the answer before I say it. It's can of Monster Energy. <laughs> is, is always number one. Top-notch health. Yep. Always whacking out the healthy, healthy options there. And I think number two, which is actually as as of, I say late, I know I haven't done gigs in a while, but as of late, I think actually it's been a Kinder Bueno white. That's been my other little, that's been my other little pick me up afterwards. Like that. Kinder Bueno white. Yeah. Not had a Kinder Bueno in ages. Well, that's what I'm going to the shop for later. Um, That that I think has been (laughs) been my go-to after shows recently, I think. Good shout, good shout. And the last one, we're going to try and finish on a positive note. Um, like I said, we okay. touched on some heavy topics. But so where you are now and everything you've done, what's the one piece of advice you wish you'd been given or one thing you know now that you'd wish you'd been given when you first started out? When you first like, came out of college or you're at college or whatever, or was that one thing that someone's told you now that you go, oh, if I'd have known that a few years ago, things would have been so much Honestly. easier, so much better. I, th- I think genuinely, I know it's a word that probably gets thrown about too much, but I think network. I think all like all the shows that I've been lucky enough to do abroad, all the sort of like larger concerts that I've done and even stuff with Dynamic, all of it has been through networking. And I, I think as much as you can have all the right talent and you can have an insane stage personality and you can know your stuff so well, I think the biggest thing for me actually is networking because I think you'll never... Go- I think unless you're extremely lucky, you're never going to find the right person to come and find you. 
And I think you have to be able to reach out and to be able to find people. Because I think unless, unless you literally hit that one in a million jackpot of someone from Sony or EMI or Warner's sat there in their living room and you come up as suggested and they decide to give you a, a view, I think actually the biggest thing I'd say is networking to reach out and to find people to work with and people to work for, but also to find the path that you then want to go down rather than waiting for it to come to you. Yeah, I think it's, you never know who's in the room, I think is yeah. part Literally. of it as well, in the sense of, you never know, what is it, it's the rumour story, rumour, I don't know how true it is, but I've certainly heard, is that the Stone Roses got signed at a gig with four people in the audience, one yeah. of which happened to be from the record label, so yet they still performed like it was a thousand people, so I think that's, yeah, I think you never know who's in the room, you never know who's about, but I think, yeah, I think making the most of who you meet and who you come across and knowing and knowing that is a really, yeah, it's definitely a good bit of advice, really, to anyone look at start yeah. out in that sense. I think it's. I think just just always explore the opportunities around you. I think just always be the person looking for it, not the person waiting for it to come. Yeah, absolutely. I think it'd be grand. I think I think that's a wonderful note to kind of end this podcast on, mate. Thanks for coming on, Indeed. man. It's been a blast. Honestly, it's it's been a pleasure being invited on. Absolutely, I hope, man. I hope I said it. It.